it's all good. Yeah. Just just means we might be here till midnight, but that's okay. Sorry. I thought the singing was going to keep us here to midnight. Um, that was a lot of singing, but it was great. It was awesome singing. Uh, so much of it centered around Jesus, which uh, is what I want and love these days, to think about Jesus and talk about Jesus and do my best to be like him. So let's start with a prayer. <clears throat> Father, thank you for tonight. I thank you for everyone that's here and ask you to bless them and bless their lives. Father, I also uh, pray that you'll be with the message tonight. I know it's an important message. We're talking about Jesus and the poor and so much of the life of Jesus, his words, his actions, his ministry, who he was, his heart, his compassion was about the poor and helping people that were less fortunate. And I pray, Father, that tonight you will just give us a deeper conviction in our own hearts uh, to be compassionate people, reach out to the poor around us and do good. And I pray, Father, that uh, through this message tonight that you will help all of us just to demonstrate love in the lives that we're living. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, it's great to be with you tonight. I appreciate the invitation to come and speak. I'm going to be talking about Jesus and the poor. It's a subject that I've studied for um, close to 40 years, I would say. And I finally got courageous enough this past year uh, to write a book on it. And so it took me about 40 years to get bold enough and courageous enough to write a book on this topic because it is a very um, bold and, and daring topic to write about, especially when, personally, I've never experienced poverty in my life. Um, I, I don't know what it's like to be poor. I've been around people that are poor, uh, primarily from uh, trips to Haiti and trips to uh, As Africa, East Africa and West Africa, trips to Asia. And so I've seen poverty. Uh, my first instance of seeing poverty was in India when I was, um, I think it was probably uh, 1983, before most of you were born. Uh, we made a trip over there because my wife and I wanted to do mission work uh, in India. And I can remember seeing the poor there, and um, uh, when I would talk about poor in India, you're talking about people that probably won't survive the next 24 hours. And that's the type of poverty that I saw there. It opened my eyes to how much I have in my own life. It opened my eyes to how materialistic I am in my life. But I'll be honest with you, the fight against materialism is a lifelong fight. Because if any of you have ever been out of the country and been out to help the poor, when you come back to the States, it, uh, the, your first thought is, is, I hate America. I hate the States. I hate the materialism. I, I, we're all going to go to hell because we don't care enough and we have too much stuff. Uh, and then that wears off in about two weeks. And you're back in the malls again. Uh, and, and the only way to fight that really because you can't keep going out of the country and coming back, going out and coming back and wearing off every two weeks. You just, you know, th that's not really a, a lifestyle that we can sustain. The only way to fight that that I know of is to look at the life of Jesus and to fall in love with him and his heart and to see the heart that he had for the poor. Now, I'll, I'll just say up front here, tonight it's going to be more teaching than it is preaching. And it's not going to be a lot of jokes because we're talking about the poor. And the subject just doesn't lend itself to that. And so it's going to be pretty serious tonight. And um, 
I'll share, mainly share two scriptures with you and then give you some thoughts that I've had uh, on this topic. In 1 Peter 2, verse 21, I don't have a clicker, so I'm going to try to work with the guys back here. Give them a hand. Um, I'm going to be trying to work with them to pull up the, the next slide. In 1 Peter 2, 21, Peter says, To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. We are called to walk in the steps of Jesus, to follow in his steps. The steps of Jesus, they lead many places. They lead to prayer. They lead to the lost. They lead to solitude with God. But honestly, when you really study out the Gospels, the place they lead more than anywhere else is to the poor and the helpless and the hungry and the sick. There's more said in the Gospels about Jesus and the poor than Jesus and any other subject. Prayer, than Jesus and Bible study, than Jesus and the lost. Also, then, um, when you look at giving, there's more said in the Gospels about giving to the poor and needy than giving to church. That's just the reality. If you were to really map it out, and include verses on social justice in the Bible along with the poor, which really we should do because um, they fit together. About every seven verses in the Bible would be on this topic right here. Every seven verses of the Bible. And yet, when's the last time you heard a sermon about Jesus and poverty? When's the last time you heard a sermon on Jesus and justice? It's a super important topic. It's all over the Bible. And yet, we tend to be selective in what we talk about. If we were just simply to go and, and study through the Bible and preach through the Bible cover to cover, the topic that you would hear come up more than any other topic would be how are we treating people around us, taking care of people that are less fortunate than us, how are we doing with that? That would come up almost every sermon, if you just simply just were to go cover to cover through the Bible. Same thing in the Gospels. If you were just to go through the Gospels, um, <clears throat> then you would come up on this topic um, about, you know, every couple of chapters. It would be there. So we'd be talking about this all the time. That isn't the way we tend to do our preaching and our teaching. Uh, we jump around and we pick topical sermons. And the topics tend to be what's ever on our heart. And unfortunately, this isn't on our heart as much as it should be. So we don't talk about it as much. We don't have sermons on it as much. Um, back in the 80s, when I was in seminary, I read a book called In His Steps. And um, it's by a guy named Charles Sheldon. And Charles Sheldon, um, this was written back in the um, early 1900s. You might think it's a recent book. This, uh, the phrase, what would Jesus do, came out of this book. And that's sort of a, a phrase that gets reused over time. Some of you might think, well, yeah, I was, that, that's a phrase I used when I was a teenager. Um, it was used in the early 1900s, uh, probably long before you were a teenager. Um, and, but in the book, the minister is preparing his sermon for the next day. Can I, can I go ahead and spoil it a little bit? I mean, it's been, it it's was printed in the early 1900s, guys. <laughs> 
it's in the common domain. Anyway, uh, the preacher is preparing his sermon for the next morning. A guy knocks on his door and asks him for help, a person that needed help. And the, sermon, the preacher was like, I'm too busy right now. I can't help you. And so the next day, as the preacher is preaching his sermon, he noticed a guy sort of standing in the back of the auditorium, and he notices that as he preaches, the guy starts walking down toward him in it, and he gets about halfway, and the preacher looks up, and he realizes it's the same guy that was knocking on his door uh, the night before. Um, but this time, as the guy gets close to him, he drops dead right there in the middle of the auditorium as the preacher is preaching. And the preacher, changed, it changed his life, and it changed the life of his congregation because he had his church start asking the question um, before they made a decision about anything, what would Jesus do? And if you're sitting home on a Saturday night preparing your sermon for the next day and somebody that's poor comes and knocks on your door and they're hungry and they need your help, you're going to drop your sermon. If you ask what would Jesus do, you would stop writing the sermon and you would help the person. So it is a big question. It's an important question. And it, my mom gave me the book when I was a teenager, and it influenced me in my life. It made me ask this question, made me think about this. And at different points in my life, I was better at answering the question than at other points in my life. In the 80s, um, we did make a trip to India. Let's go to the next slide here. Um, when I was in seminary, <coughs> I studied and read everything that Mother Teresa of Calcutta wrote because I couldn't get past the fact that she was serving and meeting the needs of people in the poorest place on the planet at the time, Calcutta, India. And we made a trip to Calcutta at one point. Uh, really because of her, I wanted to do mission work in India. And so we decided we were going to do mission work in India. Then we went to Calcutta, and I so wanted to see her there, but when, I was when we arrived, um, I got sick, and I had to stay in the hotel room the whole time we were in Calcutta. But it just so happened that on our way out, flying back to New Delhi, uh, I looked in front of me, a few people in the line in front of me. Uh, I told my wife, Lee, I sort of tapped her and I said, Lee, there's Mother Teresa right there. And it was a lady, a short lady in her sari with the blue line around it that showed she was a sister of charity. And Lee goes, oh, no way. It can't be her. And I said, no, it's her. And so I said, wait a minute, hold on a second. And I went and I walked sort of down this aisle here, you know, got in front of her, and I turned back and took a look, and it was her. And I, <laughs> I looked at Lee, and I was like, yeah, it's her. It's really, <laughs> it's Mother Teresa right there. And um, so we made our way through security, which at the time there was hardly any security. Um, so, uh, and we sat down. I said, Lee, I've got to talk to her. I've got to say something to her. And um, she said, well, go for it. <laughs> and so I did. I walked up to Mother Teresa of Calcutta, who is now St. Teresa, and I, I asked her about, um, I told her I admired her work, all that she was doing to help the poor in India. I, I talked about orphans and adoption, and I talked about hoping to work in India myself. And um, there was a priest sitting beside her, and the priest was like, oh, you'll never be able to do any of that. He said, you're an American. There's no way they're going to let you in over here. And I'll never forget Mother Teresa. She took her finger it was sort of shriveled up, and it was shaking a little bit. And she looked at me and she said, if it's God's will, it will be done. And then I thought, in your eye, priest, you know, she's just, 
You just got slammed by Mother Teresa of Calcutta, dude. Uh, yeah. And, um, but I'll, I'll never forget that. And I remember looking at her luggage as she was in, in line. Um, by this point, she had won the Nobel Prize and could have had money. But she didn't have suitcases. She had cardboard boxes tied up with twine. That was her luggage. Cardboard boxes tied up with twine. I wanted to see what she was doing on the airplane because we were on the same flight together. And um, so I walked down the aisle just to check in on Mother Teresa, you know. I was truly stalking her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and she was, she, was, she was sitting there reading her Bible with both hands like this. And the priest was sitting beside her, sound asleep. Yeah, fast asleep. And, uh, but she just inspired me so much that I, I, I wanted to go to India and I wanted to work for the poor in India. We were asked to stay in New York. And that, that's, that's fine. I mean, there's, there's poor all over the world. You don't have to go to India to work with the poor. Um, there are poor all around us. But I'm, I'm just saying all this to say she had such an influence on me and we, we need to look at people like that to inspire us to see what can be done. I read an article recently about uh, a woman in Pakistan who um, started AIDS clinics in Pakistan and, um, I mean, uh, uh, leprosy clinics in Pakistan um, to the point that she basically on her own was able to eradicate leprosy from the country. She, um, she was from Europe, a European, who decided, I'm going to go do some good. And it's, you know, it's amazing that people do these things. Um, but she and Mother Teresa have something in common in that both of them felt called because of what Jesus had done. And when you look at great leaders in the world that have done amazing things, whether it's with helping the poor or with social justice, most of them have been inspired by Jesus. Even when you consider Mahatma Gandhi um, in India, he was inspired with his peace movement um, by Jesus, by Tolstoy. Martin Luther King Jr. And then you get to people that are um, on the cutting edge of helping the poor, like Mother Teresa. It's the same thing. Because that's what Jesus does for us. He, he inspires us. So, another slide. Where do the steps of Jesus lead? Um, if you'll open your Bible to Luke chapter 16. We're going to look at the story here of the rich man and Lazarus. We're going to look at the story of the Good Samaritan. And then um, the lesson will pretty much be yours. Luke 16, verse 19. You guys with me? Okay. <coughs> there was a rich man who dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. 
But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. And now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. So beside all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, where I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Now, there's many points that can be made from this lesson here. The point I want to focus in on is I want us to look at the life of this rich man and then compare it with the life of Lazarus and then see the consequences of this rich man um, not having a heart for the poor. What were the consequences that he had to face in his life and in eternity for not having a heart for the poor? This rich man who has everything seems to overlook the needs of a poor man who has nothing. And in the afterlife, the roles are reversed. The rich man suffers and the poor man is saved in the side of Lazarus. And one of the keys to interpreting any parable, and here's a little teaching for you here, if you're going to interpret the parable, is one of the things that you look for in interpreting a parable or a story, which is what this is, is you have to look for that, that gotcha or that aha moment, that moment that surprises people. And you have to put yourself in the first century because Jesus was talking to a first century audience. So you have to know a little bit about the culture, a little bit about what's going on uh, with the people, and then look at, okay, how are they going to react to this, to this part of the story? And in the story, the aha or the gotcha moment for them would have been, here's this rich man who ends up in, in hell, and here's this poor man that ends up with Abraham, and those roles should be reversed. They should be flipped. Because in the Old Testament, riches is a sign of God's grace. And riches is a sign of God's blessing. And riches is a sign of faithfulness. Even Abraham himself was very rich. And so the rich man should be with the rich man Abraham. But the rich man is not with the rich man Abraham. And in their minds, that would have been like, wow, this is wrong. This is not what we've learned. This is not what the rabbis have been teaching us. Why? What? What's going on here? And the only thing you see in the story, the only reason this rich man is not with Abraham that we know of from looking at the story is that he did not have a heart, the heart, a heart for a poor man that was right in front of him. He had more than enough in his own life where he could have given to this poor man and he never would have felt it. But selfishness, materialism, lack of love, lack of compassion kept him from moving his heart. He knew the man. He even calls him out by name, Lazarus. He knew that he was there. And yet, he overlooked him. He stepped around him. He should have stepped up to help the man, but he didn't. And because he didn't have a heart for the poor, he ends up, in the Hadean realm. He ends up in hell. He ends up separated with this huge chasm between him and Lazarus and Abraham, the faithful. So 
This is, this is what happened with the rich man here. The, the beggar was desperate. He was a desperate beggar. We, we see that he was in pain. His body was covered with sores. He couldn't afford medical care to heal the sores. He was hungry. He wanted to eat the crumbs from the rich man's table. But he couldn't get under the table because the dogs would beat him to it. And you have to picture that. You know, at that time, they ate reclining. The table was about a foot and a half above the ground. So they were reclined to eat. And the rich man is in crumbs. Typically, a rich person would have a long beard that was well-oiled, and they would take a day-old bread, pita bread, day-old, and they would wipe out the crumbs from their beard after just gorging themselves with the meal, and then they would throw the crumbs under the table because that's what that was their vacuum cleaner. It was under the table. It was the dogs. The dogs were the vacuum cleaner. Okay, we had a dog named Sunshine, the friendliest dog you you would have ever met, and loved to eat. And we before something hit the ground, Sunshine would scoop it up and uh, have already eaten it before it touched the ground. She was our canine vacuum cleaner, and in the first century, that's what they had: canine vacuum cleaners. So you got to picture this. Lazarus wants to be a dog. He wants to be a canine vacuum cleaner. But he's not quick enough. He's not fast enough. Probably because of his sickness and his sores. And the dogs were more interested in licking his sores than going after the crumbs. But he couldn't beat the dogs off of his sores to get under the table to get the crumbs from Lazarus. And Lazarus had a hard heart about all that. And so, when Lazarus wakes up, in eternity, Lazarus has to face the fact that his lack of compassion has now put him in eternity with a chasm between him and Abraham. And that's the aha moment. He left out one detail in his life, but it was an important detail. And that's compassion for those who have less than we do. Compassion for the poor compassion for the needy. <clears throat> now look in Luke 10, 25 through 37. If you want to go to one gospel and really study out poverty in the gospels, just go to the gospel of Luke. Luke talks more about Jesus and the poor than the other gospels. And um, whereas Matthew has blessed are the poor in spirit in his Beatitudes, Luke simply has blessed are the poor uh, in his Beatitudes. And so Jesus, I'm sure, said it both ways. Luke decides to record, blessed are the poor. And that's a theme in the Gospel of Luke. So you look here in Luke chapter 10. You guys with me? Luke 10, 25 through 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. If you've answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell in the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. 
But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And he saw him. He took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to uh, an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the man who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. And that's the aha moment. Jesus wants to make sure he gets it because he might not have gotten it. And so he tells the story, but then at the end he says, now, now, okay, who's the, who's the neighbor here? Well, it's the one who had mercy on him. It's the good Samaritan. And that's the gotcha, the aha, because the good Samaritan, no one was expecting that. The priest, surely the priest would help. The Levite, surely the Levite would help, but they didn't. And then here comes the Samaritan. Basically a person that most of the Jews would not have helped themselves, and yet he helps out this poor person. Because he helps him out, Jesus uses him as an example and says, go and do likewise. You know, it's interesting. This story of the Good Samaritan is told all over the world. It's told in Christian countries and in countries that aren't very Christian. Um, The Good Samaritan is held out as the example of how we ought to be with people that need help. Um, So much so that even uh, in the States, there's a Good Samaritan law. That if you act like the priest or the Levite and you just walk around somebody that needs help, um, you, could, you could actually um, you could be charged for that. And on the other hand, if you're the good Samaritan and you're trying to do a good thing and it just doesn't turn out exactly right, then there's a possibility of, of, of getting off easier because you were trying to do something nice. You were trying to be a good Samaritan. So people all over the world recognize this good Samaritan as being something that is a high ideal that we should... We should shoot for in our lives. Wouldn't it be great if the word Christian were held in such high opinion around the world as the words Good Samaritan are? There should be no difference. Everyone who wears the name Christian should be a Good Samaritan. And if everyone were, then the name Christian would have the same type of appeal as Good Samaritan does. Because Jesus, at the very end of this, he says, go and do likewise. You see someone in need, help them. It's a command of Jesus for every disciple of Jesus to be a Good Samaritan. And if we were then our light would shine so much brighter because we would all be a bit more like Jesus because Jesus himself was the Good Samaritan. So let's try in our own lives to to emulate what we see in this story here and be Good Samaritans and be responsive to people's needs the way that Jesus was. The priest and the Levite and the Samaritan each had the capacity and the means to help the person. The difference was heart and action of the Samaritan. On the one hand, we see callousness, apathy, coldness, 
On the other hand, we see compassion, care, and concern. On the one hand, we see inaction, stepping back, stepping away, stepping over, stepping around. On the other hand, we see action, stepping toward, stepping forward, stepping up. That's what the Good Samaritan did. Stepping in the steps of Jesus. Jesus extols the Good Samaritan and commands his disciples to imitate him. Go and do likewise. That's the teaching of Jesus on meeting the needs of the helpless, the hurting, the poor, the people that aren't able to help out themselves in life. Go and do. Which will you be? The priest, the Levite, or the Good Samaritan? As a church, which will we be? The priest, the Levite, or the Good Samaritan? Will we step back, step away, step around, step over the poor, the needing, the hurting? Or will we step up, step forward, step toward those who need our help? Will we step in the steps of Jesus? Yes, we must seek and save the lost around us. We must evangelize the world. It's a command of Jesus. Yes, we must help other people become strong in Christ. We must help people mature in Christ. Jesus doesn't want us to lose a single person. Uh, and so we need to hold on to people and hold on tightly to people. But also, we must help people that need our help. And we have to be willing to speak on these topics. And we have to be willing to live out these topics in our lives also. Sometimes it's easy in our lives because we, we're so rushed in life and because of where we live, it's easy to lose sight of the poor. Um, and I think especially if, if you live in the suburbs, it's very easy to lose sight of the poor. Um, and so let me just read something that I read a long time ago. It's written by a welfare mother in Tennessee to help you see a little bit about what it means to be poor. And I'm, I'm coming down to the end of my talk now, so much more to go. It says, You say you want to know what it's like to be poor. Well, you've come to the right person. But you won't enjoy my definition. I'm dirty. I'm smelly. And I have no proper underwear beneath this rotting dress. I don't know about you, but the stench of my teeth makes me half sick. They're decaying, but they'll never be fixed. That takes money. Poverty is getting up every morning from a dirty and ill-stained mattress. A hard, lumpy mattress. Sheets, they've long since been used for diapers. For there are no real diapers here, either. That smell, that other smell, well, you know what that is. That, plus sour milk and spoiled food. Sometimes it's mixed with the stench of onions cooked too often. Onions are cheap. Poverty is being tired, dog-tired all the time. I can't remember when I wasn't tired. When my last baby came, they told me at the hospital that I had chronic anemia caused by a poor diet, a bad case of worms, and the need for corrective operation. Poverty is dirt. You may say in your clean clothes and coming from your clean house, anybody can be clean. Let me explain housekeeping with no money. For breakfast, I give my children grits with no margarine or cornbread made without eggs or oleo. For one thing, that kind of food doesn't use up many dishes. 
What dishes there are, I wash in cold water. No soap. Even the cheapest soap has to be saved for the washing of the old sheets I use for the baby's diapers. Look at these cracked red hands. Once I saved up for two months to buy a jar of Vaseline for my hands and for the baby's diaper rash. When I had the money and went to buy the Vaseline, the price had gone up two cents. And I didn't have another two cents. Every day I have to decide whether I can bear to put these cracked, sore hands into that cold water and strong soap. Why don't I use hot water? It takes money to get something with which to heat it. Hot water is a luxury. We don't have luxuries. Poverty is asking for help. Have you ever had to swallow what pride you had left and ask for help, knowing your children will suffer more if you don't get it? Poverty is looking into the future, devoid of hope. Your children won't play with my children. You wouldn't allow it. My boys will sometime, someday turn into boys who steal to get what they need. I can already see them behind prison bars. My daughter, she'll have a life just like mine unless she's pretty enough to become a prostitute. I'd be smart to wish her dead already. Poverty is an acid that eats into your pride until your pride is burned out. It is a chisel that chips at honor until honor is pulverized. You might do something if you were in my situation for a week or a month. What would you do? But would you do it year after year? Getting nowhere. Going nowhere. I did not come from another place. And I did not come from another time. I'm here now. And there are others like me all around you. And that is the face of poverty. And the poor are all around us. And yet sometimes, like the rich man, we don't see them. Because we hold so many things in front of us that we fail to look up and see the needs of people all around us. I stopped on my way here at a little restaurant up on 88th Street. And as I was eating, a man came in, had just a styrofoam cup with some hot water in it. And then he went and he looked in the garbage can in the restaurant for some food. And he didn't find any there. So he went and he looked at the trash can at the front of the store for some food in the restaurant. And he reminded me there are poor all around us. And then I was walking from 88th down Broadway to get here. And as I walked, I looked on my left. And there was a man sleeping in a cutout door frame, trying to push his way as far as he could out of the rain and out of the cold with everything that he owned in life all around him right there on the hard stoop of that step in front of the door. I won't tell you what I did in those two situations because I will have already received my reward if I tell you. But I noticed. And I think sometimes we can be in such a hurry 
that we fail to notice and we fail to respond. In your ears tonight, I want you to hear ringing over and over again these, the, I, the, the words of Jesus, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Just a, a couple more points. Robert Baltz and Gerard Schneider have this quote here from Matthew 6. I wish we had time to look at Matthew 6 right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. It's a great passage. But they talk about here that in this verse Jesus speaks in these verses of almsgiving in order to characterize the disciples' true piety. Another word for that is saying spirituality. The disciples' true spirituality. What is decisive is sincerity of intention expressing itself in spontaneity of the good deed not done for the sake of theatrical effect. In other words, what Jesus is looking for, and you can go to the next slide there, I believe, is in Galatians chapter 6, Paul talks about it. He says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Opportunity, spontaneity to all people, intentionality. Uh, Jesus talks about it in, in Matthew 6. Be intentional in the way that you look after the needy and also be spontaneous in the way that you do it. See the needs that are around you and respond. Intentionality and spontaneity. Both of these things is what God is looking for. And Jesus was that way. You can go to the last slide and we'll just leave it there. Jesus was that way. I, I encourage you to go back and to study out the Gospels. If you, if you don't want to work through all four of them, work through the Gospel of Luke. And just l- underline anything that, that connects with poverty, healing, taking care of the needs of people, social justice, Anything like that, just just circle it, take a look at it. And then I encourage you also to look at the Sermon on the Mount. Look at Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And just go to the Sermon on the Mount. Focus in on Matthew chapter 6, the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And honestly, in, in many New Testament teachings, what's in the middle is the core. It's the bedrock. It's the way Jewish teaching works. And so right there in the middle of it, He says, when you give to the needy. He doesn't command it. It's just an expectation. When you do this. Why? Because we're going to be like him. And so our intention is going to be the same as his intention. To help people around us. He also says, after that, you you can't love God and money. You can't serve God and money. You've got to look at your life and and see how controlled are you by materialism. Jesus was intentional in his spontaneity um, towards meeting the needs of the poor, the sick, the hungry, the thirsty, the imprisoned, the demonized. In Mark 1, the whole town of Capernaum shows up at Peter's house with their sick family members, and Jesus stays up into the night healing them. In Mark 6, verse 30 through 44, Jesus feeds 5,000 hungry people who are following him. Then in Mark 8, He fed 4,000 more. When John the Baptist was in prison and he had these questions about Jesus, he sends his disciples to Jesus and he he asked them in Luke chapter 7, go and find out if Jesus really is the Messiah or not. And so they come and they say, our our rabbi, John, wants to know, "Are are you the real thing? And Jesus sends them back. Yeah, go tell John this. 
And Jesus sends them back, not saying to them, yeah, look at all the people we baptized. Look at all the leaders we've raised up. Look at all the disciples that we've made. Look at all the disciples that we kept faithful over the years. Although those things are important. That's not what Jesus said. That was not what characterized his ministry at that point in time, if ever, in his ministry. What Jesus sends these disciples back to John saying is, tell them the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them. Jesus had a heart for the poor. He had a heart for people that were hurting. His heart was a heart filled with compassion. He gave to the needy. That's who he was. He took care of people who didn't have the wherewithal to take care of themselves. That's who Jesus was. And you know what? Jesus expects his followers to be the same way. Let's not allow Good Samaritan just to sort of ring out there in the world as this is, this is, a, this is a person who's above what a Christian does. It should be equal to what a Christian is and does. So I ask you in your own life, right now, this season of the year is the season where, yes, we focus in a little bit more on the needy. We do different things around Thanksgiving and around Christmas to meet the needs of people around us. But giving to the needy is not a seasonal activity for disciples of Jesus. It's not something that we just do at the end of the year because everybody else around us is doing it. Because we have a, a, a hope contribution coming up. Because we have um, Thanksgiving coming up. Because we have Christmas right around the corner. Giving to the needy, taking care of the needs of the poor around us, should be a year-round activity for those of us who are disciples of Jesus. Let's make sure that we are not like the rich man. Let's make sure that we are like the Good Samaritan. And that way, let's make sure we are like Jesus. Amen.